You're listening to the Science of the Local podcast. I'm Hamish Clark. And I'm Kevin Joseph. And uh, we've got our first ever proper podcast this week. Uh, We're speaking to Professor David Blair. He's a physicist uh, and he's a professor at the University of Western Australia and the director of the, now this is a mouthful, Australian International Gravitational Research Centre. It's a mouthful. It is. Uh, What did you think? I thought it was an excellent talk. It, it was really special listening to a scientist who has spent 40 years of his life working towards something um, and to actually interview them and hear them talk at a moment when something major has happened. Um, he seemed full of excitement and reinvigorated, actually, is the word that comes to mind. Mm, yeah, I mean, what a payoff after all those years. Um, but I mean, at the same time, as he tells the story in retrospect, uh, he seems quite confident that, that something could have happened because as he, as he tells it, uh, his early kind of mentors were encouraging him to, to try crazy things, to, to take big risks and, and try and achieve something big. And lo and behold, he uh, was part of a team that did that. Yeah, absolutely. And that it's a project that's um, so collaborative because um, I think he's a part of the LIGO Labs, correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, just the fact there are multiple LIGO Labs, um, you know, all around the world, and that they're working collaboratively, collaboratively towards this one aim, I think was was pretty unique as well. If you listen, uh, sorry, if you go to our website, uh, we'll stick a few links to some URLs, some websites that are relevant to the talk. Um, there's a great article that David wrote himself about um, about the discovery and his you know long long lead up to it, um, and there's also something at the conversation which is a little bit more technical but a really good explainer, uh, and I've also stuck in a, a link to his Google Scholar page, which is a little bit uh, heavy but it's it's nice for non-academics to say because in some ways that's how. Academia views scientists as just some, someone that produces a lot of publications. So you, you can check them out after the interview too. And if you want to go on a complete tangent, I thought, I thought it was amazing that uh, David Blair has been involved in developing the, the Sapphire Clock. And I was blown away by the statistic that said that uh, clock is so accurate. It actually only loses one second, I think, every... 30 or 40 million years, which I don't know, that's stuck in my mind. So. Wow, that's just ridiculous. Yeah, pretty accurate. <laughs> okay, well, folks, uh, enjoy uh, David Blair. Enjoy. So you've been working on gravity for quite a long time, I understand. How did you get into the, the area? Uh, well, uh, it's a long, long time ago. Um, I, I was a young postdoc. And I was uh, keen to, uh, I'd been, I'd been um, I had a, a sort of mentor as an undergraduate student who always used to say, don't go out and just do something easy, go and find the most difficult thing in the world to do. And uh, uh, I said, find something really challenging, that'll be satisfying. So um, uh, when I was finishing my, my PhD, um, I... Uh, made contact with a guy who was doing a whole lot of crazy, uh, amazingly difficult experiments, and every every crazy every crazy experiment you could imagine, he was trying to do. But in in a good way, not just crazy crazy. 
Yeah, yeah, in a good way, you know. And uh, he was a, he was basically a low temperature physicist, and he he said that if you use low temperatures, you can always do things much much better than if you do it at room temperature. For example, you can use superconductivity. You can reduce the thermal vibration of the atoms. Um, everything should be much better. But um, and. And it, he was, you know, he was right. But uh, one of his colleagues made a, um, and they, and this was sort of called. People used to call this Fairbanks law. Fairbanks law was that any experiment you could think of could be done better with cryogenics. And then this guy called Hamilton, who I actually worked very closely with, uh, he had made this thing that they that he called Hamilton's lemma. And Hamilton's lemma was, and it is always much more difficult. And of course, we learned that uh, doing this with cryogenics was extremely difficult. But uh, they um, so um, so I ended up. I was happy to join any of Fairbanks' projects. He was trying to drop single electrons and measure their acceleration in gravity, and then he was going to drop positrons and do the same thing. He was trying to uh, detect individual quarks that might be trapped in matter. He was trying to measure the curvature of space around the Earth. Um, um, that's just a he, he built a superconducting. Well, he sort of encouraged the development of a superconducting particle accelerator, which was the precursor of the Large Hadron Collider that discovered the Higgs, you know, last year. So, um, uh, so this uh, you know this guy was a real visionary. And uh, around this time, uh, a guy called Joe Weber had uh, claimed to have detected gravitational waves with a great big bar of aluminium that had uh, sort of plastered around its surface uh, big lumps of piezoelectric crystal. It's the sort of crystal like you have in those gas lighters where you squeeze, squeeze and it goes click, click, click and these sparks come out. And he had put big blocks of that stuff on these aluminium bars and he was measuring vibrations and he could measure vibrations down about the size of the nucleus of an atom, pretty uh, spectacularly small vibrations. Um, and uh, he'd worked out the idea of gravitational wave detectors, but then he had this fatal failing and that failing was that he believed his results too much. He wasn't sceptical. And he announced he'd discovered gravitational waves because he said he saw coincident excitation of two distant detectors. And, um, but Fairbank saw all of this. Lots of other people said, oh, we're going to make detectors the same as Weber's. And a whole lot of people did within a couple of years. There were 10 of these Weber-type detectors all around the world. But um, uh, Fairbank said, we're going to make something a million times better than um, than Weber. Yeah, with his uh, crazy uh, ambitious streak. Yeah, yeah, and that was, and he said, we're going to take five-ton bars of aluminium, we're going to cool them down to a few milli-degrees above absolute zero, and we're going to invent superconducting um, vibration sensors to put on these things, and we're going to magnetically levitate them in space so that they don't pick up any vibrations from anywhere else and we'll be this much more sensitive than uh, Weber. 
And, uh, and that was a project that, you know, what in my, uh, in, you know, naive young state, I sort of thought, oh, well, I'll go along, we'll build this detector. In a year or so, we'll detect gravity waves, then I'll go on and do something else. And that was 40 years ago. It was actually 42 years ago or 43 years ago. And, um, uh, uh, but at the same time, uh, these, these detectors got pretty good and they got to probably, in terms of energy sensitivity, they actually achieved a million times better than Weber. But as time went on, we realised that that wasn't enough, and that was, and it was about uh, 15 years ago that we joined the American LIGO project and started uh, developing technology for that. But in the process, we had built a detector, uh, one of five big detectors around the world. We built one here in Western Australia, and those five detectors worked in the in the 1990s and looked for black holes coalescing in the Milky Way galaxy. And we didn't find any. And so we could set limits to how often black holes were coalescing in the Milky Way. We didn't uh, detect anything, but around that time, uh, these huge projects were funded to build detectors that were like, you know, a thousand times better than ones that we had built. And that was clearly the way we had to go. Wow, and so uh, yeah, fast forward forty years, and you, it, it's all happened. Um, yeah, are you still going to try and build one a, a thousand or a million times stronger than this, or do you change tack now? Oh no, so uh, so after having built these um, these ones in the nineteen nineties, uh, then we sort of abandoned that technology and realised we had to we had to join this laser technology, and we've been working. Uh, my group here has been working on that technology ever since. And, uh, and so we are now part of the big international project that's the LIGO project. Uh, but, uh, but we are also very, very keen to build one here in Western Australia, or at least in Australia. It doesn't really matter where. But what we, what we know is that, it's, um, that we are... We uh, here have the longest baselines to all the other detectors in the world. We have a 40 millisecond light travel time baseline from here to uh, the other detectors. Um, uh, the two in America have a baseline of about 10 milliseconds. So we... Uh, um, so it's a huge amount of time. <laughs> yeah. Well, so having this huge, this long baseline means that we can determine the direction of gravity waves much better than anybody anybody else. And also, you have to have an array of detectors in the world to be able to detect uh, where gravity waves come from. So currently, you know, these gravity wave detectors have got amazing uh, distance sensitivity. We can say how far away signals came from, but we can't tell where they are coming from in the sky. Oh, really? Not, not at all, even, even no. vaguely speaking? Yeah, you can. Uh, I think the error, um, the error, uh, er we call it an error ellipse. What's the shape of the ellipse in the sky that you can say there's a sort of 90% chance of it coming from? And I think in the, in the case of the detection that's just happened, it's about 500 square degrees, and that's a huge amount of the sky. That means you couldn't tell whether it's coming from um, 
you know, so halfway to the North Pole or halfway to the South Pole. But that's not the point in this case. Oh, how do you mean it's not the point? Well, I mean, uh, it's not as though it it, uh, it kind of downplayed the significance of the discovery in any sense that you oh, said, oh, damn, we didn't know where it's from. What a waste. Yeah, but, the, but this is the first, is the first discovery and uh, we'll, um, we'll, I, I predict that pretty soon we'll be at a sensitivity where we're having, you know, more than one event per day. And there will be uh, lots of information coming in. And what we want to do is make use of that information to answer the questions that we're interested in. And uh, many of the, um, uh, and these are questions about big black holes, about the, what the universe is made of, about where these big black holes came from. And all of that, you need to know something about the direction of these, uh, that the signals came from. So, uh, so to, to get direction, you need to turn this array of detectors in the Earth, in a, on the Earth into a, a sort of global telescope so humanity can hear sounds from throughout the universe and know where they came from. So it sounds like you've got a lot of plans for the future. You're not letting up anytime soon. Uh, yeah, well, we've, we've just, you know, after 40 years, we've exposed the tip of the iceberg. You don't want to tell young scientists that. Surely they need a bit of a carrot to, to get them going in those first few years of their career. Yeah, well, now is uh, is you know we now we have the the exploration of this whole new spectrum in front of us. Um, until this discovery, we had we had the problem that we didn't know how um, uh, you know how sensitive we had to be to be able to start to detect gravitational waves. Uh, we had predictions for some sources, which are the pairs of neutron stars coalescing, but we didn't have any really serious predictions about how often black holes coalesce. There were people who thought there might, that, uh, that black holes might be coalescing uh, quite often, but uh, because these had never been observed, there was no way of validating any of the predictions. So all we could be doing was sort of saying, well, these are the, these are, you know, here's one person's prediction, here's another person's prediction, here's the sort of range we might expect, we just got to go out there and look. And um, having, but now that we have signals, we uh, can quite precisely predict how many more signals we expect. And uh, the interesting thing is that we've been able to um, so far, we're able to listen to black holes coalescing inside a volume that's of the order of a cubic gigaparsec of the universe. Uh, that sounds significant. Well, that's quite a big lump of the universe. Uh, but the total volume of the universe is about 10,000 cubic gigaparsecs. Oh, okay, yeah. One out of 10,000th of the, of the universe is pretty, pretty big still. Yeah, it is pretty big, but, but we have the opportunity, you know, the small improvements of our detectors will allow us to hear the whole universe, and that's an absolutely amazing thing to think of, that suddenly the whole universe, at least for certain sorts of events, can be heard. And uh, uh, there have to be enormous implications from being for you know for, 
for being able to do that. You can, um, uh, you know, cosmology is really the study of the universe as a whole. Uh, by studying these things, we have, and this will tell us something about the shape of space in the whole universe. It tells us about um, about star formation in the universe, all sorts of different things, and uh, uh, and to be able to even think of having whole universe studies um, uh, is pretty amazing. Pretty radical, yeah. So is, is that something that you, I mean, how can you possibly keep track of all this? It's such a big area, getting bigger. So much more is being made possible with the discoveries. There's only so much you as one person can do. Oh, of course, of course, I'm not one person. You know, the... Uh, I mean, we're a community currently. We're a community of a thousand physicists. It took a thousand physicists to, you know, build these detectors, build ways of analysing the detectors, and you know, um, and be able to, um, you know, to get to this point of detection. So uh, uh, this is, you know, being able to look at at it from, you know, with a bit of hindsight because of my long experience. Um, you know, I can uh, I can see that. I mean, this is uh, this is stuff that's going to occupy physicists and astronomers for a long, long time. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to happen in the next 10, 20, 50 years. Uh, well, speaking of those lengths of time, I was wondering if I could just very quickly pick your brain on one of the other topics of our our talk that we have coming up. Uh, it's on Sunday, March thirteen is uh, exoplanets and exoplanetary science. And that, that seems to be entering a little bit of a golden age. Um, but I can imagine also with further developments in technology that what we know now could be you know, dwarfed pretty quickly by, by new discoveries. Is that something you've paid any attention to? Oh, yeah, definitely I pay attention to it because it's a really exciting thing. Um, long ago, I organised an Australian collaboration to try to detect signals from extraterrestrials. We used the Parkes Radio Telescope to you try You can to... tell me. Did you find any? <laughs> I don't need to give you that answer. You would know if we had. <laughs> um, so we didn't. Uh, of course, we had some moments of excitement, but we, but we didn't uh, discover anything. But we were only able to look at the very, very closest. Uh, um, uh, I mean, we... We only bothered to look at the really closest stars because these are the only ones close enough to know that the Earth is emitting radio and uh, the emission of radio is a sign that there's technological uh, uh, civilization there. So they're there. So, uh, so we only bothered to check stars that were, uh, you know, up to about 50 light years away that had that had had time to pick up our radio and then start to reply to us with beacons. Not quite on a gigaparsec scale. <laughs> Absolutely not. But uh, um, but I have to say that uh, you know discovering how planets formed, of course, is fantastically exciting. But the main reason that this is exciting is because we want to know how many civilizations are out there. The, how are we going to get? From knowing about the planets to knowing about civilizations, I don't know. I think that's uh, that's still going to be very hard. My prediction, which I made about so sort of 10, 10 or fifteen years ago, is that in about three hundred years, 
the earth will receive some huge, powerful beacons, which will be coming from the civilizations that picked us up. We had to give time for the, our radio emission to get out there and then give them time to reply. And my prediction is that it's a few hundred um, light years distance that you're going to have to be getting our radio signals and we can't make them go any faster um, uh, before there will be people out there who, who like us, will be interested to know um, about life in the universe and the only way they can find out about life in the universe is by uh, communicating. And so we'll be sent, in, in a thousand years' time, if humanity is still here, um, we, might be, we might be sending out encyclopedias and receiving encyclopedias and we might all be social scientists studying comparative religion across the galaxy. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Finally, social science will get a bit more respect. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, look, that's probably a good note to end it on. Um, uh, thanks a lot for your time, David. It's really fascinating. I could I could easily fill a whole hour here, but um, uh, I should let you go. And um, uh, yeah, I guess just uh, thanks again for your time and looking forward to, to watching the field. Yeah, yeah, good. Thank you. Okay, all the best. <laughs>